0: following is a presentation of the boston podcast network podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story find out how you can get started at pod617.com welcome to the ask harry podcast this is harry margolis and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning On this episode of Ask Harry, Harry chats with attorney Joseph Imbriani of the law firm of Taylor, Ganson & Perrin on the subject of year-end tax planning. So I'm delighted that Joe Imbriani has come back and is joining us again today, and we're getting towards the end of the year. And Joe's going to talk to us a bit about end-of-year tax planning we can do, but before that... Joe, could you give us, tell us a little of your background so we know uh, why, why we should have confidence in what you're going to tell us? <laughs> Always
1: a good question. Yeah. Uh, I went to undergrad to study accounting. Did exceptionally well in undergrad, though I wanted to go to law school, but I did very well, so I couldn't walk away from that profession without going to get certified. So I went and worked for then Cooper's and Lybrand, now, of course, Bryce Waterhouse Cooper's. And did some time there, as as we say in the audit world. (laughs) Sounds like sounds like sounds like prison. It pretty much was. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't enjoy it. You would often hit your forty hours by Wednesday evening. Uh huh. So that was a lot of fun. That's a way for the partners to make some money. Absolutely. So I studied accounting in undergrad, and then went on and became a CPA. That was in I think nineteen ninety one. Then went back to law school on a full time basis which is another difficult step to step back into being a student Mm -hmm. from the real world. right? When all your classmates in law school have no idea what dry cleaning is (laughs) or the fact that you actually have to do that Uh to your suits. So then I went to law school with the sole purpose of practicing the areas of tax and estate planning. So I then became an attorney in 1993. And my areas of practice are as a CPA, as an attorney in the trust and estates field, and then as a professional trustee. I went on to get one further designation, a personal financial specialist. So basically I will be able to address all the legal and tax issues in your life. So it sounds like one-stop shopping, which is good. That's exactly what we aim to do. And I never charge clients for their CPA talking to their attorney. Very good. (laughs) Though it happens regularly. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Good. So,
0: um, so as I said, we're getting to the end of the year, and what are some of the things that uh, people should think about between now and December 31st to minimize their taxes for 2019 going into 2020?
1: There are generally two areas of year-end tax planning, those that relate to itemized deductions and all others. The ones that relate to itemized deductions, we need to understand a little bit of the background, First, I'm going to limit my comments to federal income taxation as many states, such as Massachusetts, do not allow any itemized deductions. Second, everyone has a choice whether to deduct their actual itemized deductions or take the so-called standard deduction. Thus, some of the techniques that we will discuss only apply to taxpayers that itemize their deductions, while others show the interplay of taking actual itemized deductions versus taking the standard deduction in different years.
0: So just to interrupt, I I understand that the standard deduction has changed significantly uh, under the recent tax bill, so there are more people taking it and fewer people itemizing that, right?
1: Absolutely. The rules changed substantially by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which became effective for 2018. It substantially reduced the number of people that Mm -hmm. itemized their deductions for a number of reasons. First, the Act substantially increased the standard deduction. Second, So so what is it now? The standard deduction depends upon your filing status, Mm -hmm. which we'll get into a couple of examples explaining how clients will evaluate whether or not to itemize their deduction. Getting back to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, in addition to reducing the number of people that itemize their deductions by increasing the standard deduction, It also limited items of deduction, one of which that hits most people is the so-called SALT limitations. Your state, local, and real estate taxes, including excise taxes, are limited to a maximum of $10,000. So your Massachusetts withholdings or estimated tax payments plus your real estate tax payments plus your excise tax payments are limited to a deduction of $10,000. So most people hit that limitation. Mm-hmm. So that substantially reduces what their itemized so deductions would So that means be.
0: With, with this law they're, they lost any deduction they used to get over $10,000.
1: That is correct. Wow. The act also made a number of deductions such as your tax return preparation charge no longer deductible. Oh. All miscellaneous itemized deductions, have been suspended. So in other words, you don't get them. So if you have a couple, we'll take John and Mary, a couple in their 50s, they're entitled to a standard deduction of $24,000. Assuming they hit their $10,000 limitation on taxes, John and Mary would need to have $14,000 in home mortgage interest and charitable contributions for it to be more advantageous for them to itemize their deductions. And if,
0: if they were not married, do they, is it 12000 each?
1: Yes, it's generally 12000 each. It sounds there like there are some exceptions. There <laughs> are always exceptions based on age um, as well as marital status and things of that sort. So for those that itemize, there are some techniques that they can consider. They can try to accelerate some deductions, but there are potential roadblocks that they have to consider here. First, suppose they want to pay all of their 2020 real estate taxes in 2019 to take a deduction. First, I would need to evaluate whether they're going to exceed their $10,000 limit on all taxes. If they were, then that wouldn't provide any tax benefit to them at all. The second issue specifically deals with real estate taxes because many people at the end of 2017, before the limitation came into play, tried this same technique. But now some cities and towns consider a prepayment of real estate taxes to be a deposit, not a payment. In such cases, the payment would not be deductible in 2019. As an aside, another technique that some people tried at the end of 2017 was to make their payment to a charitable fund in return for a credit in the same amount on their actual real estate taxes. Rules have been enacted to prohibit this technique. You need you need the municipality to cooperate. In any case, I would think you would, uh, and some municipalities did. Uh huh. However, there are rules now that prohibit use of this okay. technique. Another technique is to accelerate charitable contributions. For example, if you planned on making a contribution to a charity in January of 2020, if you pay it in December of 2019. You would be able to deduct it on your 2019 tax return. A more sophisticated technique, pooling charitable contributions can often be used. Let's go back to Mary and John and assume they have mortgage interest of about $10,000 a year and usually donate $5,000 per year to charity. If They follow the usual trends for the next two years in each of 2019 and 2020. They would have taxes of $10,000, Mortgage interest of ten thousand dollars and charitable contributions of five thousand dollars. Thus, they would itemize their deductions, which total twenty five thousand, as opposed to taking the standard deduction of twenty four thousand. That's only
0: a thousand dollars more than the than the twenty four they get any
1: if they didn't itemize. That's right, and that's where the technique comes into play. If they were to accelerate all of their 2020 charitable contributions into 2019, then they would be able to deduct $10,000 in charitable contributions in 2019. So thus on their 2019 return, they would have itemized deductions of $30,000, $10,000 of taxes, $10,000 of mortgage interest, and $10,000 of charitable contributions. Then on their 2020 return, they could take the standard deduction of $24,000. So for the two years they would have deductions of fifty four thousand dollars an increase of four thousand dollars which at a tax rate of 25 percent will save them a thousand dollars and a higher tax rate would save them more (laughs) absolutely so it may be a little bit more cumbersome to explain to their charities that they would give twice as much in 2019 and none in 2020 but it would save them a thousand dollars in my example thus generally accelerating deductions is a good technique, but you have to be careful about the rules and the limitations. And it probably
0: depends how close you are to that $24,000 standard deduction, because if you're gonna be way over it anyway, because you have a big mortgage or you make a lot of charitable contributions, then it probably doesn't matter so much.
1: Well, actually, in that case, if you are already going to itemize, it would help you to accelerate deductions that you can take. But again, you have to think through and say, this is a deduction for real estate taxes, but I've already hit my $10,000 limit, so it will produce no tax benefit to you of accelerating that deduction. So um, have, you,
0: have you worked with clients who use, um, i trying to um, remember the name, but uh, donor-directed funds for, uh, like the Fidelity Charity or yep, the Boston Foundation?
1: Donor-advised sale? funds, and Fidelity has a fantastic donor-advised fund very easy to establish and maintain. They do 99% of the work. You can make contributions to that DAF, as we call it, donor advised fund, and take the deduction in the year of contribution to the DAF.
0: So you could, for instance, put in $50,000 in this year and take the deduction, and but still give the charity $5,000 a year for 10 years after that.
1: Absolutely. And you would have to evaluate your Ability to make a contribution this year fifty thousand as opposed to your usual five thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and you would also have to evaluate the friction costs of managing the donor advised fund mm-hmm. and the expenses associated with the same. And uh, but if you got
0: some, some kind of windfall, perhaps an inheritance or a um, stock options or something, some big bonus that might be a thing to do. Th- right. To think if about. you
1: if you received something that was taxable, inheritance is course, as you know, not a taxable item. However, if it was a stock option situation or a sale of closely held stock and you had a very large amount of income, you certainly would evaluate whether or not it's appropriate to match a charitable contribution deduction in that year. And I've done that on very many occasions with either a donor advised fund or a charitable remainder trust Mm -hmm. to a to accelerate the charitable contribution deduction so you match that deduction in the year that you have the unusually large amount of income. And then go back to the standard deduction, which will make your life easier. It certainly is much easier. So in general, it's always advisable to accelerate deductions and defer tax. We've talked about the acceleration of deductions so let's look to the deferral of taxation one of the best ways to defer taxation is with a qualified retirement plan it would take us hours to discuss all of the qualified retirement plans so let's stick with a simple one if you have the ability to contribute to a 401k the amount contributed subject of course to certain limitations is excluded from your taxable income as the 401k grows the earnings are not taxable either. When you take the distributions from the 401k, the amounts would be fully taxable to you. Thus, you can avoid paying tax now while you're working and rather pay tax later when you're retired and likely in a lower tax bracket. The ability to defer income other than with re- qualified plans is very fact dependent and some techniques simply do not work. For example, If you did not cash your payroll checks earned in December of 19 until January of 2020, the wages would still be taxable on your 2019 tax returns. Business owners have some excellent opportunities to defer income, but such techniques for them are very fact-specific. So in true confession fashion here, I'll let you know that we just
0: filed our 2018 tax return because... we had an extension to October fifteenth, and uh, and on October fifteenth, we were able to deposit some money to my wife's SEP and my SEP to maximize our our um, retirement
1: plan uh, contributions, so we wouldn't pay taxes on those now. That's a fantastic technique, and there are rules that require you to have the SEP established in advance. However, it doesn't have to be funded until the due date of your tax return with extension. But don't wait to October 15th every year. No, we don't (laughs) like extensions because then you have to do the tax return twice. Uh Once for April 15th, Mm -hmm. so you know how much the client needs to pay with the extension. And then second, when you actually have to do the tax return. So these are some of the techniques that some people may be able to use if you itemize. But there are other techniques that a large majority of people can use regardless of whether they itemize their deductions. So focusing more on the income side. A relatively common technique is to harvest capital losses. Suppose you hold a security in your portfolio that you like, but it is currently worth less than you paid for it. You could sell the security and take the capital loss, generally subject to limitation of three thousand dollars for all of your capital transactions however if you like the security and want to continue to own it you have a couple of choices you could sell it and buy it back so long as the repurchase was more than 30 days later you can deduct the loss on the sale second you can purchase a second lot of the security and sell the first lot so long as you can adequately adequately identify the first lot as the one you sold, you can take the loss. Again, subject to various limitations.
0: So what most of us, I think these days, don't own individual securities. We own mutual funds or uh, ETFs. Um, Is there anything you can do with those?
1: Yes, you can use the exact same technique if you own mutual funds, as I just described with respect to individual securities and harvesting capital losses. There's also an additional technique that holders of mutual funds can use. Mutual funds are required to distribute a substantial portion of their capital gains prior to year-end, which is a discussion far beyond today's, but suffice to say that most mutual funds make a final distribution of capital gains in December. So if you sell the fund before the distribution is received, you will not have to report the income. So uh, but then but then do you lose the benefit of the distribution? Well, you would not receive the distribution that is correct. However, the value of the fund Is based on the securities held and the planned distribution. That's when a fund makes a distribution The fair market value of the fund generally decreases immediately thereafter So using this technique you can avoid the drop in value and still have the loss to deduct. Uh huh.
0: Sounds good. So, uh, so this has been very helpful, and I think it'll help a lot of people listening, so they can uh, minimize their taxes and maximize their earnings. Is there a way? Uh, it's such a pain in the neck to do taxes. At least, at least for me, which is why I procrastinate and do it on October fifteenth. Uh, <laughs> is there
1: are there ways to simplify the process? Well, the process has been substantially simplified by the the tax cut that we talked about. So the very few people actually itemize their deductions. Again, think back to John and Mary. They're in their 50s, so their standard deduction is $24,000 a year. If they hit their $10,000 of taxes, so that's limited, they have to have another $14,000 in charitable contributions and mortgage interest for them to itemize. So say they're a little bit older, though not into their 60s because the standard deduction changes then, mm-hmm. so not over 65, uh, and they have already paid off their mortgage. Unless they make substantial charitable contributions in excess of 14000 per year, they're not going to itemize their deductions. Mm-hmm. So there are so few people itemizing their deductions today that their tax returns should be relatively simple to complete and the you don't have
0: to keep track of all that and add it all up at the end of the year and try to get nope. it right
1: just pick up the standard deduction that applies to your circumstances and go ahead and take that uh, many people also noted the substantial change in the forms for 2018 and how most of the forms have writing on a quarter to a half of the page and the balance of the page remains blank this was a technique Designed to make it appear that the forms are much simpler than they have been in the past mm-hmm. In actuality you have the same Information that was previously found on pages one and two of your 1040 cut up into all these separate pages So although the forms appear to be simpler It's just all the information is spread out a little bit more.
0: Oh. that doesn't seem to help but, uh, but that's my last question uh, in terms of filling out these forms. Uh, should you, you do it yourself or use TurboTax or hire an accountant? What, what, what's the well, best it de- option? It
1: depends upon your circumstances and how sophisticated your return is. Many people can do their tax returns themselves, uh, whether they do it themselves or they use something like TurboTax. But if you have a more sophisticated return, TurboTax often doesn't get it right. We have seen that. We have had clients come in saying, well, I prepared the return on TurboTax, and this is the result. And then you go through the return, and you input it into a better software package, and you find out that, no, their tax return is not correct.
0: Are there certain kinds of things that would be markers to indicate that you ought to go to an accountant?
1: If it's anything other than simple, seek help. Okay. Because you're likely... To have deductions missed that you do on your own. Mm -hmm. So more often than not, it's worth the money spent. So I assume if you have your own business, you're not just receiving a salary
0: or a wage, or if you have stock options or anything along those lines, you you should get help.
1: Absolutely. If you have more than a W-2 and some 1099s, you probably need some assistance. Even if you have one or more rental properties, Mm -hmm. there are very specific rules that relate to rental properties that you want to be advised on by somebody capable of doing so. Yeah, and, and don't don't forget to take the depreciation.
0: <laughs>
1: Thank you very much, Joe. I think this will be a
0: lot of help to a lot of people.
1: You're very welcome. So uh, how can people reach you, Joe? My law firm is Taylor, Ganson & Perrin at 160 Federal Street in Boston. I've been there for 25 years. I think I'm nearly a permanent fixture. And we can be reached... There at 617 951 2777, and you should ask to speak directly with me. And what's the URL of your website for the firm? TaylorGanson.com.
0: Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Harry. Thank you for listening to the Ask Harry podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes. If you're interested in Harry's book, Get Your Ducks in a Row, The Baby Boomer's Guide to Estate Planning, please visit Margolis.com. That's M-A-R-G-O-L-I-S.com. Ask Harry is a production of Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.